Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. Hello and welcome to The Daily Reprieve, where we provide essays, speaker meetings, workshops, and conferences in podcast format. We are an ad-free podcast. If you enjoy listening, please help us be self-supporting by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and drop a dollar or two into the virtual basket. Please consider donating monthly by clicking the Donate Monthly button. However, one-time donations are always welcome. Just click the Donate Now button. Now, without further ado, this episode of The Daily Reprieve. six years and uh, I tell you there's so many things about David that I want that I would like to emanate for myself and uh, so that's why I call him just about every day and he'll vouch for that and I I'm, I really just go ahead and talk I, I can sit up here and uh, you know try to build his ego up but he doesn't have any problem with that but uh, I really love you David and uh, thanks for I mean, staying staying with me it's just been such a great honor and let you guys see why I've asked him to be my sponsor these last few years. Thank you. David, maybe. I am David Maynard. I am a sexaholic. And by the grace of this program and God, my understanding, my sobriety date is August 2nd, 1988, for which I'm never sufficiently grateful. And as I realized, uh, Yesterday, that's 15 years, 7 months, and 1 day. Not that we're counting or anything. I, um, about 45 years ago now, I, I took a new position. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I was um, asked to uh, take a position in Seattle, to which I would commute every other weekend for about 5 days at a time. And it was great. It was a very, it was a great opportunity. I was really pleased. And my wife and I went up and met with these people and, <laughs> and we were uh, driving away. And this part of Seattle, there's a big bridge. It's West Seattle's big bridge that connects with the main, main one there, the main part of Seattle. And we were driving over that bridge. And my wife said how grateful she was. Um, that I was back in this occupation, and um, and even more importantly, how grateful she was that it was uh, Seattle. And I said, why? Because we've never had any connection with Seattle particularly, and not with this group. And she said, because there are no ghosts. <coughs> it's very difficult for me, if not impossible, 
to realize and to accept what my wife, my wives, my children, my friends, people who depended on me to be somebody there to do certain things for them at different times, whatever it was, occupation or friendship or whatever. It is uh, very difficult for me to experience that. And yet, there are times when God breaks through, such as on that bridge that day. And it's just incredibly clear. And it's true. There were no ghosts, and I didn't add to the pile of the memories while I was there. Uh, I now work back in uh, in Portland, have for almost two years now, and um, and one day at a time. That also continues to be a place uh, where I haven't added to the pile. It took me quite a while to. Uh, figure out what the topic was, uh, or the theme was for this conference. So it wasn't that Wilson didn't tell me when I'd ask him. Uh, I just, I didn't write it down and it didn't sink into my head. So finally, just a few days ago, I said, Wilson, my sponsor keeps asking me what's the title of this theme of this conference and I can't remember it, so I'm going to write it down. I had the newspaper in front of me and, and he said, well, out of the darkness into the light. And so I wrote it down and said, thank you, at least now I'll remember it and I can pass it on. And then for about a month and a half now, I have been leaving one of my, my laptop computer out on the dining room table and uh, have been, as often as possible, writing uh, meditations for the new meditation book, which all of you are invited to write for also. And... Uh, I had written two or three meditations and shared them with my sponsor, and I said, well, what else should I write about? And he said, well, why don't you write on the St. Francis Prayer? So I said, okay, that's fine. And uh, so I've been working my way through it. I do two chunks of it at a time. So, Lord, make me a channel of my peace, uh, that where there's hatred, I may bring love, that where there's wrong, I may bring the spirit of forgiveness, that where there's discord, I may bring harmony. And where there's error, I may bring truth. That where there's doubt, I may bring faith. That where there's despair, I may bring hope. That's as much as I had written. So I literally went from my breakfast nook table where I'd written the theme into the uh, dining room because I had some time and for various reasons, things going on in our life, I had not uh, written any meditations for about three weeks. And I sat down to write the next uh, little meditation. And I just started laughing. <coughs> like that, as has been my experience throughout uh, this program, uh, God, you are so totally unsubtle. And um, you are always looking for some way to jerk my chain very successfully. And uh, sure enough, the next words were, where there are shadows, I may bring light. Where there's sadness, I may bring joy. So here's what I wrote. Like most children, I was fascinated by my shadow. I loved to see how it was connected to my feet, how it moved with my emotions, 
how it came and went with the sunshine. After a time, however, my shadow became just another part of me moving through the day. I lost my awareness of its place in my life. My last shadow followed a similar course. When I was four or five years old, I was fascinated by the feelings and sensations of lust. When I was ten, lust moved into place as my constant friend to which I would turn for comfort. Over the next thirty years, though, I would have said otherwise, I lost the ability to tell whether my lust shadow or my healthier self was leading my life. Coming into Sexaholics Anonymous opened the door to freedom. At my first meeting, I heard others talk about their addiction to masturbation. I identified immediately, for I knew with three decades of certainty that I could not stop. I also, for the first time, realized that I was indeed getting drunk on lust. This explained why I did things I did not want to do over and over again. God, through SA, changed the spiritual darkness to light as I surrendered my disease. God, through SA, allowed me to experience the deep sadness of my sexaholism and the consequences of my acting out. While I still have <coughs> days when the mental clouds block God, out, block God out, I have more days when joy and lightness lead the way, for which I can never be sufficiently grateful. Thank you, God, for each sober day and for the opportunity to share your light and joy with others who suffer this disease. Well, I had lots of ghosts in Nashville, lots of shadows, and unfortunately, lots of light. Um, and I guess that's what I will share for the next uh, few minutes uh, with you. I can um, trace my um, focus on sexuality, on lust, uh, without interruption from age four or five, some four and a half is actually when I dated. And um, I look at young children, my grandson is six, my granddaughter is four, and um, I'm around other children from time to time. and. And I look at them, and uh, thanks, and and just really stunned to think of what was going on in my head uh, and in my life at the time, at the age that they are. Um, and I remember once talking with Jess about this, and he said, "Yeah," he said, "You know, for an alcoholic to start actively and regularly drinking at age five or six, it's not unheard of, but it's pretty rare." Most people start, uh, you know, in their early teens, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, and, uh, and then some people, of course, start even later. And, uh, and I realized that by the time I was 12, for instance, uh, I had been going at it for about seven years and had a fair amount of momentum at that point. The acting out changed over the years. For me, it began with uh, taking my clothes off in public and with constant fantasy. I remember once it was here in Nashville uh, sharing with a therapist, my first therapist here, uh, after I had been honest about my sexual addiction and telling her how much I enjoyed as a child in our neighborhood going off into the 
uh, forest and, and wandering. They were building developments, so I was wandering the roads through the trees, but I was equally comfortable by the creeks and, and just wandering the trails. And, and I was saying to this her with this kind of sort of muted ecstasy that I remember from that time. And, and all of a sudden I looked at her and I said, I was running away from home, which I was. Uh, I was in a level of pain, not because my family was dysfunctional, but because of the way I, they were. But I was running away because I couldn't handle what was going on at home. And I ran away literally, and I ran away in my mind. Uh, and I discovered that if I stimulated my body as I ran away, it was all the much more satisfying or successful or distracting or whatever. Um when I was five, uh, in then first grade, I remember being disciplined for voyeurism on the playground. Um, and, you know, it's so what, kids, you know, do that and they get in places. But, but what I can remember is standing under the ladder on the slide with not just a, oh, isn't this interesting because I'm from a family of, uh, other than my mother, all boys. And, um, but, but being really, fixated on it, just totally centered on, in this case, girls' body parts. And um, when I was seven, I remember acting out with other boys uh, in the woods and almost being caught. Um, and it did, chose not to do that again after that. Well, that's not quite true, but, but with other, in groups anyway. Uh, but what did happen at the same time was my intensity of focus on girls my age or younger was uh, very strong and while I would say quote nothing happened uh, in fact what was happening was the, the intensity and the, the need to um, sort of focus on sexuality which I didn't know what that was um, but it was there and, and it was just grew stronger and stronger when I was 10 I discovered masturbation I remember the bed, I remember the night, I remember uh, what I was wearing and what was around me. I've heard alcoholics describe memories of their first drink, and um, I have never heard any difference in our stories. And uh, for me, it was, uh, well, as one guy here in, in Middle Tennessee puts it, actually, uh, alcohol is the greatest solvent in the world. Um, only thing I can say is for me, lust was the greatest solvent in the world and masturbation that went with that. My first, uh, fantasy sexual partner was my mother and something in me told me that was wrong. Uh, so I transferred it to a neighbor, uh, of our house and, uh, and began fantasizing about being sexual with women ever uh, since until I came into this program. I thought something was not right about it. I remember in a high school sexuality class a couple of years later, we had a question box you could put questions in. And, and I uh, put in a question, is is how much masturbation is too much? And the uh, coach who was conducting the class said, well, if it hurts, it's too much. And uh, I thought, well, okay, uh, I guess it doesn't hurt. Uh, it did later, but, but it hadn't at that point. And the fact that I was uh, hiding my mess, that I was secreting magazines, uh, that I seemed to be in a constant state of arousal, which 
given my age, wasn't so unusual, but that I had this this intense need to do something about it uh, on a daily basis. Uh, that's what was concerning me, not whether it hurt or not. And uh, that was I was just shy of 13, and that was the last time I tried to stop until I came in uh, to this program. So it was roughly 29 years. Um, where I just I knew I couldn't stop, so I didn't try, and uh, and thought I convinced myself it was normal. I, I still I think I had my doubts, so I studied and learned to teach human sexuality. Um, I figured that would be you know give me credentials to uh, uh, support what I was doing anyway, and uh, and while I don't think as a teacher of human sexuality I did any good, I mean I did any damage. I know I didn't do myself any good either, uh, because it became yet another way of feeding and, and acting out on the lust. As we drove over here this morning, coming across on Blakemore, uh, Wilson was driving and eating his breakfast, lunch, and dinner simultaneously. <laughs> and I, uh, I said, Wilson, there's an important traffic light coming up here. And uh, I forget what street it is, but anyway, it's one of the traffic lights coming across. And, and I said, Wilson, it was as I was stopped at this light, and there was a woman in the car in front of me, and I'd been sober about a week or two. This was in August of 1988. And the light turned green, and we started moving forward, and I was just totally besotten, distracted by her hair, which actually normally wasn't a trigger for me. But I was just, it was just really drove me nuts. And I went about half a block further, and I had, as I've often had uh, in uh, surviving recovery, this wave of goosebumps come over me. And I suddenly realized, clearly for the first time, that I had gotten into a pattern of sexualizing every person, male or female, Every situation, no matter what it is, every object, it really didn't matter. I somehow tied it into uh, sexual fantasizing. And um, and for what it's worth, nothing's changed. I still do. My sponsor said, um, who's sitting here actually, uh, said uh, once to me, you know, David, before uh, we got sober, all we did was think and talk about sex. And now that we're sober, all we do is think and talk about sex. Uh, but in fact, it's with a wholly different purpose. Because uh, the one was to feed it, and the other uh, is to let it go and give it back to a source that can handle it. My uh, disease progressed steadily. Uh, although since my primary uh, Addictions were to sex with self and to uh, fantasy to feed that. I uh, didn't have a lot of involvement with other people. And in fact, when I first did have uh, intercourse with a woman, I knew I had to marry her and did. That was my first wife. Um, and I remember thinking, I've always identified with this in Roy's story in the White Book, um, but since I was married, I should stop masturbating. That really wasn't a good thing to be doing. And I didn't know why, but I thought it probably wasn't. And um, and so I did try that for a week or two, probably, maybe a month. And then it started again. And I remember uh, having this um, 
a sense that I had this secret from my wife. And uh, it was kind of like Sylvia's story this morning about not going to the event for these people and for six months not saying anything about it and then realizing later that they hadn't been there either. And in my case, uh, it was probably a year or two into our marriage. Um, for some reason, uh, the subject came up. Uh, and I had said something about my wife about I, I just had this really special secret. And she hadn't asked about it particularly. But, but somehow it came up and I said, well, the secret is that I still masturbate. And I just had this combination of relief and shame and everything simultaneously and she looked at me and she said so what and I remember thinking that's but this is a big deal and and of course it was a big deal it just wasn't a big deal to her um, and looking back now I can see that I knew something was wrong all the way along I knew at age 10 I knew at age 5 something was wrong but I didn't know what, and I certainly didn't know what to do about it. And it wasn't for lack of people trying to give me help or giving me perspectives. They did. I just didn't know what they were talking about and didn't know what to do about it. When I was 13, right around the time I asked my question in gym class, um, I also uh, chose my occupation. And I... Um, always said it's because, well, I like talking about religion and I like, you know, listening to people and people seem to like to share with me. Um, it was only when I came into this program and had been sober for a little while that I realized uh, the other piece of that was that I knew something was wrong and I thought, well, if I choose, uh, if I go into the religion business, uh, that'll take care of it. You know, that'll make me okay. And, um, as uh, the same guy I was talking about earlier who talks about the greatest solvent likes to say, you know, for him as an alcoholic, he became an auctioneer. He said, you know, greatest occupation you could ever have. You work one or two days a month. You've got enough money to drink all month. He said every hand is a fifth of whiskey. And uh, and I heard him say that, and I thought, you know, it was the same way with me and my occupation. Unstructured time. And, and the inherent ability to be close to people, to be helpful to people, and of course from time to time to cross boundaries and to uh, violate uh, people and people's trust. Um, it was great occupation for that, and it's no surprise that I've sometimes sat in meetings with an awful lot of people who uh, made the similar choice. Um, during my teenage years, uh, other than the fantasy and the efforts at being sexual with women I was dating, um, I uh, found that um, I just became more and more consumed by, by lust consciously. I remember uh, in the late teens, right around age 20 maybe, uh, being in one of these encounter groups in the late uh, 1960s and sharing our feelings and being honest. And it was actually a good group. I remember saying to a woman in the group who was older and for whatever reason, um, I said to her, you know, because it's part of the honesty, well, I'm not sexually attracted to you. And it was kind of like what I later said to my wife about, you know, I'm masturbating. And she didn't think anything about it. For me, it was a big deal. She was the first one, you know. Um, and I was really distraught because I didn't know whether I should be pleased that there was one, finally, or... Um, 
that I should be so really concerned that, that I was doing it constantly. But there was a transient thought, and, and I had another 22 years of research to do at that point. <laughs> I did, um, did marry. Uh, we uh, started having an open marriage after about a year, uh, and that basically meant we each had the license, uh, permission from the other to have affairs. Um, I don't know uh, whether my wife uh, had my issues or not. She certainly was mimicking me, and she also, I think, was pretty disgusted uh, by my behavior. And uh, later, after we were divorced, uh, she immediately married one of the uh, men she had not only been having an affair with, but had had a baby with by that time. Um, and uh, and they've been now married 29 years. So uh, I guess uh, for her it was the shift that was needed. I uh, got uh, finished school and, and did some other things that just needed to be taken care of in the early 20s and and uh, and went and got my professional credential and and then. Um, Found a uh, a new wife, and uh, and you know it's I'm really I'm actually not a bad counselor, um, but it's one of the things that has uh, really been clear to me is that I just can't do anything for myself. Um, I had a mentor who was a been through psychoanalysis, a very wise man, very compassionate man. When my wife and I were starting to break up, uh, we went to see him, and my first wife. And uh, and he listened to us, and he said, you know, I think you guys are just too far along for me to be much help. But he said, you know, David, you and I have been meeting uh, anywhere from weekly to uh, monthly for over two years now. And this is the first time you have ever mentioned that there was anything wrong with your marriage, and it's when you're here with uh, Phyllis and talking to me, and it really looks like it's probably beyond rescue. And that was very humbling for me because I knew all the stuff. I knew all the right formulas and the rebound periods and, and getting help. And, and I could tell anybody else, but I couldn't do it myself. It was totally impossible. Um, that marriage did end, and uh, in no small part because of the numerous affairs uh, I had had by that time. And uh, not thinking that I should go into my occupation unmarried, I got engaged to a woman that had been uh, my most recent affair. And uh, and we, I went off to do an internship uh, for three or four months um, out of town. And I had not been out of town more than ten days when I started another affair. And um, I thought, there's something wrong with this picture. Uh, it probably isn't the, you know, the right uh, thing to be doing, but, you know, I was 800, 600 miles away, and, and why not? Um, and that's the way uh, lust worked in me. Uh, not only the constant sexualizing, but uh, the constant rationalizing, or as people point out, you can pull the word apart into rational lies, and I always had lots of rational lies. Um, and... Um, while I was uh, gone, and, and I've got a guy right now who's uh, going through this, uh, well, a few months ago he was, I guess. Uh, while I was uh, gone, um, the woman to whom I was engaged acted out sexually with someone that I had forbidden her to act out with. 
I suppose it was sort of like throwing a rabbit into the briar patch or something, but uh, and I was really hurt. How could she do this to me? I remember when this guy I'm sponsoring, or I was sponsoring, because uh, he moved, said, you know, he, he was just devastated that his ex-wife, they'd been divorced for some time, had had an affair with some guy, and 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 this was just so totally outrageous. And I said to him, you know, um, his name's Jeff. I said, Jeff, uh, you do uh, see prostitutes pretty much on a several times a week basis. Uh, well, that's different, you know. And uh, and I had that in me. I know I was exactly the same guy. Um, well, anyway, because she had done this horrendous thing, and because uh, really uh, marrying someone who uh, was an affair you were having uh, while you were in a marriage probably wasn't a good idea. I thought, well, I'll, I'll get to go with this woman where I had done my internship. And uh, so I uh, I did a terrible thing. I, I've done many cruel things in my acting out history. One of them uh, that's in some ways not hardest for me to live with, but the most painful when I talk about it is uh, the woman I was engaged to went off to work one day. And when she came home, I had just moved everything out of the apartment that was mine. I left all her stuff. And and put it in storage, and uh, it really devastated her. And and, uh, and I was going off, literally, I'm ashamed to say this, I was going off singing that stupid song, Slip Out the Back, Jack, Make a New Plan, Stan, whatever, they, you know. It was popular at the time. And, and I was drunk. That's I was drunk. And I'm not excusing my behavior, but that's certainly what was going on. Um, my wife uh, and I got together, and... Uh, she, uh, surprise of surprise, got pregnant, and uh, so we got married, uh, and uh, had a baby coming along, and uh, at that point, I'd been divorced probably eight months, and had just ended an engagement rather abruptly, and, and uh, had an unplanned pregnancy, and and um, I remember thinking, you know, there's, this is probably not what you would suggest to somebody else to do, David. Uh, but I was doing it, and I used to just tell people, well, as my excuse, well, just don't do what I did. It wasn't a good idea. But let me tell you what would be a healthier pattern. Uh, my, Jane and I have now been married 28 years, um, and so we're, we're pretty amazed. Um, because essentially she was an affair I was having while I was engaged to an affair I was having while I'd been married. And, uh, and I always thought that probably gave me credentials to be in this program. <laughs> but I didn't know about this program. And uh, we um, moved to Illinois and later moved to uh, Tennessee, to Nashville. And my acting out continued and, in fact, got worse during that time. Uh, we had terrible, terrible fights. In fact, the day before we were married, the minister who married us said, are you sure you want to marry somebody this angry, David? And uh, and I said, oh, well, we'd stumble through it somehow, because he didn't know she was pregnant, and I did. And, um, you know, and, and she was really angry. She was just one angry woman. Um, and it took me a long time to understand uh, what some of the roots of that anger were. Um... I'm gonna, I'll just say in, in Illinois and then here the acting out, uh, continued. Uh, when I had been in California in school, I did uh, have an affair with a married woman and, and, um, her husband uh, came after me to kill me. And I decided after that to not have affairs with married women anymore. Um, and I didn't. Um, 
And, and that's one of the things I have to look back and remember about this disease for me is that I not only had a history of the disease continuing to get worse, but also if there was a sufficient consequence, I actually uh, would change and, and do something different. And that there always was this element of choice. As much as I would want to think I was swept away or powerless or whatever, uh, the fact is it's always a, a degree of choice. I, uh, here, uh, and with my, I should say with my wife now, her name is Jane, we only had one thing, was that we were not to have affairs, sexual relationships outside the marriage. And actually for over two years I didn't. Uh, I was very proud of myself. And um, and when I did finally break that uh, cycle, it was with someone that I had developed a relationship be- after I separated from my first wife and before Jane and I had met. And so I figured this one was different. And it would be okay to have a relationship with her. Um, and, and as I said, rational lies. You say them out loud and it's like, what were you thinking? Um and, uh, but you see, I knew it wasn't really the physical act that was a problem. It was the total emotional and, and spiritual devotion to the person, which, of course, I had too, but that's another issue. Um, I was just so full of lies um, to myself and to others. Here in, uh, in Nashville, it, it got worse. Um, I, as I said, I only acted out with, quote, appropriate women. Um, and that often meant uh, out of town. Um, in fact, it usually meant out of town. Um, and so I did that um, sort of game for a long time. And, and uh, one of the uh, women came to work where I worked. And I was really absolutely terrified. And, uh, and I told her, I said, you know, if you take the job, I couldn't tell her not to come because that would be, you know, in, inappropriate because we had this secret relationship. But, um, but, and she was clearly qualified for the job. But I did tell her, I said, if you come, we, we'll just have no, uh, ongoing physical contact. And we did not, as a matter of fact. Although we worked together, although I actually was her supervisor. Um, it was very humbling because this was actually the only person that I had brought into my house to act out with. And I really had a lot of shame about that. And so every contact we had reminded me of having, my wife was not around at the time, but, and the kids weren't either, but, but it was doing it that was the issue. Um, when that mattress finally was discarded, uh, some years into sobriety actually, I remember I had no idea how much that was weighing on me until it left on the dump truck. And, uh, and that God takes care of us in many, uh, different ways. But that actually went okay and I continued the, uh, acting out, and, and then um, uh, we had a sabbatical together, both of us, and we uh, went on this uh, long trip. And I remember my biggest fear on the trip uh, was uh, would we be able to get along together in a one-to-one situation with just one of our children along with us uh, for this four months? And I was just terribly terrified by that. Which, when you put it in the broader context, it really shows how insane I'd actually gotten. Because a month and a half before we left, I was sitting over here on Hillsborough Road in a therapist office, uh, having uh, been just right at the brink of committing suicide, and saying, I, I really don't know what to do, because I've had an affair in this area, not 
specifically in Nashville, but very close by. And um, and I knew I was violating my ethical canons, and I knew it was wrong, and I didn't know how to stop. And I was told this guy everything, and that was the first person I ever told everything to. And I was about ready to kill myself. And um, and he said, "Well, you know, if you're going to have affairs, you just need to learn how to not get so distraught about it." <laughs> when I came into this program, uh, which seven months later, eight months later, I was really furious with him. One day, I'd been sober about four or five months, and I was driving down the road. I'd been to a meeting. I was going past his office. I was probably about two blocks away from his office. And I suddenly realized that, first of all, he had saved my life. And said literally. <clears throat> and secondly, he didn't know any better. He just didn't know any better. And I went up, this before I had Harvey as my sponsor, and I went up and did what Sylvia said not to do. I made an amends. I wrote it out to him and left it uh, with his secretary. He was in session. And, and, uh, and I've actually been grateful to him ever since, and I have no further contact with him, but uh, but he did save my life. The funny thing is that what I thought was the big issue was, would my wife and I be able to get along together for four months? Well, in fact, in the four months, while we did get along together and while we had a wonderful time, I kept in contact because, I, of course, I did have this emotional and spiritual connection with all these women, and she found my list. I, I did have this pattern of getting caught, um, and I've always identified people who set it up to get caught. Um, and uh, my wife confronted me, and I broke off all contact, and when we, by the time we got home, I knew I was free. Finally, I was still masturbating, but the affairs were over. And I didn't know masturbation was a problem anyway. And about two months after that, the woman here, over whom I had committed, almost committed suicide, um, indicated very, very unambiguously that she wanted to resume the affair. She was fine. She didn't have any troubles. and She just wanted to do that. And I was absolutely petrified. Um, on August 4th, we had started seeing a therapist about two weeks before. On August 1st, uh, 1988, my wife uh, literally melted down in front of me. She had a, a mental breakdown, and uh, it was awful. It was at midnight, uh, and um, the, it was just, we've had many fights, but that in some ways was just the most painful. But in some ways, perhaps what was the most wonderful thing was I was sitting there in that chair listening to her scream. I don't know what the kids were doing. They were off like in the bedrooms, I guess. And, um, and I was sitting there and I had, I didn't have anything to say. I had no answers. I had no more quick ideas. I was totally out of solutions. And, uh, it was really empty. It was very lonely. I had often talked about my occupation as being the loneliest occupation I could imagine. It, it turned out that's a lie, by the way. That was me. But um, but I've heard other people say it, and I think, yeah, I know about you. Um, and um, and that moment is when the loneliness kind of all peaked for me and, and came together in one, one spot. That chair is still in my living room in Portland. And whenever... 
I think I know what I'm doing. I go sit in that chair. Went to see our therapist the next afternoon, about uh, 3 o'clock, 3.30, 4 o'clock, somewhere in there. And uh, it was immediately after I said to her, well, I'm just the kind of guy who has to be involved more than one woman at a time. She said, well, you're a sex addict. And as some of you have heard me say, uh, I've talked about this before quite a bit, but um, I knew she was right. I knew that I had known it a long time. And she said, go call this phone number. So I did. There was a payphone outside before cell phones. And um, I called the number, and this woman answered, said, Dr. So-and-so's office. And I said, well, this woman therapist had told me to call this number, and I was to ask about SA meetings. And she said, oh, and as if she'd had many of these calls, which turned out she had. And um, she said, call this number, and she gave me the hotline number. Well, if you don't know about miracles in this program, first of all, uh, that I would go to someone who would know uh, the phone number uh, and give it to me. Secondly, that I called the phone number and the secretary was there and answered and gave me the next number that I needed. Thirdly, that I called the SA hotline number and I went home and literally had a phone call about 45 minutes later. Now, that just doesn't happen. And I went to my first meeting um, Tuesday night, August 2nd, 1988, room 374, United Methodist Church there on West End. <coughs> I was terrified. Um, I guess God was there. I was an atheist, so it didn't matter. Um, <laughs> because I walked in and one of the first people I saw, well, the guy who had called me met me, so I saw him first, and he became my first sponsor. And I walked in, and there was a colleague that I knew. And I wasn't too surprised to see him, because he'd been on the front page of the Tennessean. <laughs> <laughs> and I knew from that that he'd been after treatment up at Golden Valley. But I was a little surprised that he wasn't surprised to see me. He told me later that he'd been waiting for me. <laughs> and he founded SAA here in Nashville. Um, and, um, and then I was sitting in that small circle, I don't know, there were seven or eight of us, there were maybe ten, I don't think there were even ten. And that was uh, that meeting and the meeting the next night where the first time I heard about getting drunk on masturbation, getting drunk on lust, uh, being powerless to stop, and um, and I had been around the periphery of AA for many years for professional reasons, and and I knew that um, I had come home. And in fact, as you can see, I cry a lot. But in fact, uh, the first time I cried uh, at an SA meeting was probably my second meeting when we read. Uh, at that time, the literature looked very different than it looks today, but. But it was very much the same, and, and we read the solution, and, and um, when we got to that last line, we were making the real connection. We were home. I just started bawling. And for the first four or five years, I think I cried a lot in SA meetings. Um, now it's not as often, because... <clears throat> 
that little kid who'd been running away. Excuse me. That little kid who'd been running away since age four. Excuse me. I always wanted to go home. And I just didn't know. And I think all these damn ghosts. I think that's been the core of it for me ever since. Is first of all to say on a daily basis to the God I do now believe in, as I understand him, that I just don't know. I never knew. I thought I knew. I was real smart. I studied lots of stuff. I'm real attentive. I listened to lots of stuff. I integrate things pretty well. I integrated lots of stuff. But the fact is, I didn't know. And the amazing thing is that there was a place that I could go six days a week. We had six meetings when I came. This was the biggest concentration of SA meetings in the world. We had six meetings a week. And we were desperate. Harvey and Jean, who gave us that phrase for which I'm never sufficiently grateful, battled each other. The scars are still healing, I'm sure. But in fact, they gave us this program that's meeting here this moment. And as they'll be glad to tell you, they gave it because they were desperate. Because they didn't know any other way. The good news is that one day at a time, since August 2nd, 1988, I haven't had to go back. And I haven't ever been allowed to say, I don't know. Or I've tried to say it many times, and my first sponsor, who later left the program right after I did my fifth step, I don't think they were connected. <laughs> and as far as I know, it has not made it back. Uh, he certainly qualified. Um, and then Harvey was my sponsor for seven, eight years, nine years, something like that. And, and then um, I moved, used Jess as a sponsor for a while, and then he did his thing and died. Um, and, uh, and so and since I had moved from Harvey to his sponsor to Jess, I just moved on to Jess's sponsor, and, and I've used Bob as my sponsor for the last few years. And um, and what has been given to me is not only the freedom that I talked about, but also um, the joy, a new life. My wife and I say we're in our third marriage. It just you know we started one, then ended at twelve years, and we started another one, um, and then now has whatever six, uh, fourteen years uh, in existence. Um. And um, I've had an opportunity on a daily basis to share what's happened to me with other people. Uh, I know I wouldn't be standing here today if that weren't true. 
I've stand, stood on the shoulders of giants, Sylvia, Hardy, Catherine, and others who have come and have stayed, and um, Roy, of course. And, um, and the thing that has probably been most important to me is that realization that no matter what happens, no matter what thought goes through my mind, no matter what crazy situation I get into, I am never alone. And I never have to be alone again unless I make a deliberate choice to do so. And I certainly hope one day at a time that I keep coming back. Thank you. I would like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve. I'd like to thank you for listening to this episode of The Daily Reprieve, the best source for experience, strength, and hope for SA members. Please subscribe to this podcast to be alerted of new episodes. Please show your support by donating to The Daily Reprieve by going to donate.thedailyreprieve.com and choosing either monthly donations or a one-time donation by clicking Donate Now. Thank you for listening, and stay tuned for the next episode of The Daily Reprieve.